Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Today, Marvin McIlvaney has an important Bible in the News report. But first, our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, will debut his brand new book entitled Calvinism on Trial. Watchmen on the Wall is here each day to bring clarity to the chaos and remind everyone who tunes in that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. In this new year, don't miss out on any of the important topics and information that is shared on Watchmen on the Wall. Subscribe to our free e-newsletter, A Moment of Prophecy. The latest insight and analysis from our speakers and access to our latest resources. Sign up today for the free e-newsletter, A Moment of Prophecy. You can sign up at swrc.com or by giving us a call, 1-800-652-1144. And if you prefer the mail, you can receive our free monthly updates through the mail. Same great information just delivered through the mail swrc.com or 1-800-652-1144. Dr. Larry Spargimino has noticed a brand new breed of Calvinists that is rising and with disastrous effects. So he has set out in his new book, Calvinism on Trial, to prepare us to think biblically about some of the areas of critical concern facing the church that are often misunderstood by those in the Reformed community. Larry Spargimino is with us. We want to talk about one of your latest books, Calvinism on Trial. Why did you write a book, Calvinism on Trial? Primarily because of the increasing popularity of Calvinism, and it is having a very negative effect on the church. Proponents of Calvinism are generally articulate, They make a very strong case for Calvinism. There are some verses and arguments that they use quite convincingly. Many Christians, you know, can often do not agree with Calvinism, but they just don't know how to defend against it. So my book is designed to equip them to understand some of the faulty presuppositions behind Calvinism. And I also examine some of the pet verses that Calvinists use to teach Calvinism. Well, you need to help all of us understand, what is Calvinism? Calvinism gets its name from John Calvin, who taught that God predestinates some people to heaven. And because God only predestinates some people to heaven, Jesus Christ died for them and for no one else. Calvinists do not believe it is correct to tell a lost person God loves you and has a plan for your life. That's not true for everyone, according to Calvinism. There are some people whom God does not love. Calvinists believe in the bondage of the will. In other words, there is no such thing as free will. The human will is bound, they say, and because of the bondage of the will, no person can choose Christ. They have to be chosen by God. So the only people who are saved are those who have been predestinated to be saved, Those who are the elect are regenerated even before they're born, and they are irresistibly drawn to the Savior. And so because they, and they alone, have already been regenerated, they alone believe on Jesus Christ and are saved. 
Calvinism is the opposite of Arminianism. Calvinism stresses the sovereignty of God. Arminianism stresses human choice. Now, I believe that both Calvinism and Arminianism, they're both incorrect. And I know a lot of people will say, well, if you're not a Calvinist, you must be an Arminian. No, no, no. I'm not an Arminian. When you talk about Calvinism, oftentimes people seem to get their hackles up. They become concerned. They act like there's a problem that either because you think they are or they're not Calvinist. Is that a response that you see? Absolutely. It happens quite often. In fact, there's so much confusion about Calvinism that that's one of the reasons I've written the book. As you know, I was a Reformed Baptist for many years and also a Reformed Presbyterian pastor for many years. So I know something about the issues, and I really hope that this book would educate. The book is Calvinism on Trial. What's the subtitle of the book? This tulip, T-U-L-I-P, has thorns. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now let's talk about the word tulip. What's that all about? There are five letters in tulip, T-U-L-I-P. The T stands for total depravity. All Christians believe in human depravity, but Calvinism gives it an added twist. Total depravity means total inability. Fallen man has no ability to believe. No one has free will. Only the elect believe and are saved because only the elect are regenerated. The U stands for unconditional election. The elect are not chosen because they have met some prior condition. God's choice is not because of anything that God sees in man. God's choice is not even based on foreseen faith. His choice of some is purely based on his decision. In other words, election is unconditional. Then the L in TULIP stands for limited atonement, which is also particular redemption. Jesus Christ did not shed his blood for everyone. Jesus Christ did not die to make it possible for everyone to be saved. Jesus shed his blood, according to this position, only for the elect, and he did that to guarantee that they would be saved. The I in TULIP stands for irresistible grace. The elect are irresistibly drawn to the Savior. They cannot reject salvation. As a matter of fact, they don't even want to reject salvation. They have already been regenerated and saved in times past. In the Calvinist scheme of things, regeneration precedes faith. So, of course, those who are born again will come to the Savior. And the P in TULIP stands for the perseverance of the saints. If you're truly saved, you will persevere in living the Christian life. So if you've done a lot of good things and are continuing to do good things, then you can have assurance of salvation. That's why Calvinists like to use the term perseverance of the saints rather than eternal security. It is only those who persevere in the Christian life, only they can have assurance. Now, someone once said, Arminians know that they're saved, but they're afraid they can't keep it. Calvinists know they cannot lose their salvation, but they're afraid they do not have it. So the perseverance of the saints says that your assurance is based on your works. And I have a whole section on that. I think that's a rather dangerous belief. So if you're not doing the works that you think you ought to be doing, then you don't have a proof of salvation? 
Right. The proof is in the fact that you're doing a lot of good things. And you and I well know that sometimes the best of us, even Paul in Romans 7, was not doing a lot of good things. I think assurance is a very delicate and a very critical issue. And sometimes souls who are very perspective and introspective, you know, they can think they're really terrible people. In fact, I've got a quote from R.C. Sproul in Table Talk where he speaks about he feels like he's lost. He said when he thought of that, there was a dark chill that went down his back, and he didn't know what to do, and so on and so forth. But for Calvinists, that's a good thing. If you feel you might be lost, that's a good thing because you're serious about salvation. Now, for the Calvinist, if you're happy, if you're joyous, if you're laughing and rejoicing in Christ— you are considered a theological lightweight. Now, the reason I know something about that, because my mentor was a Reformed Baptist. I spent many years with him. He was always very depressed. And the reason was he was dealing with some issues, and he thought, well, he might not have been saved. And I can tell you, the whole congregation, there was a dark shadow that settled on them. It was very disconcerting. So I think the issue of assurance is a very, very critical issue. In the P section of the book, I deal with that at length. Well, I noticed that in years gone by, people like D. James Kennedy were Calvinist, and yet they were evangelists as well. Haven't there been Calvinists who were used by God to bring revival, whether it be someone such as Kennedy or Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, or even Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Weren't they Calvinists, and weren't they used of God to bring the gospel? That's a great question, and a lot of people ask it. Now, it's true that Edwards, Whitfield, Spurgeon all claim to be Calvinists, and yet these men were not consistent Calvinists. Now, in my book, I have quotes from these men, and they sometimes said things that consistent Calvinists would not say. In fact, in some of Spurgeon's invitations, he sounds like Billy Graham. Even John Calvin himself made some statements about John 3.16 and the Bible's use of the word world, cosmos, that do not sound very Calvinistic. As best as I can tell, it was some of Calvin's followers, some of the next generation Calvinists who developed tulip theology into a very rigid theological system, some of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, some of George Whitfield's statements, some of Spurgeon's statements. They claimed to be Calvinists, but they certainly did not cling to that very rigorously. In fact, some of the Calvinists claimed that Spurgeon wasn't even a good Calvinist. And I think that's the way they got around it. Sure, God is sovereign, but in their appeal, they appeal to lost people, that Jesus loves them. And they said that in a very indiscriminate way, the way I would and the way you would, because we know that God loves all people. Indeed, the love that God has for the lost, is that a major portion of the truth that Calvinism purports? Calvinism would say that God's love is only limited to the elect. You know, in Vacation Bible School, we used to sing, Jesus loves the little children, and all the children of the world. Well, for the Calvinist, you can't say that because you don't know that Jesus loves all the children of the world. You know, you and I have been in Honduras. I've been to Pakistan. There are thousands and thousands of little boys and girls. And oh, my heart, 
goes out to them because I believe that Jesus' heart goes out to them as well. Well, now, what do you hope will happen as a result of your book, and what do you hope to accomplish by its publication? My primary focus is to help Christians who are confronted with the claims of Calvinism and who, quite frankly, don't have an answer. I want to help them. I want to give them an answer. Calvinists are very committed to their position. They are armed for close debate, and quite frankly, most Christians today are not ready to debate the issues. While many Christians do not agree with Tulip theology, they don't know why they don't agree with Tulip. I think there are some really good reasons for not agreeing with Tulip theology, and I want to share those reasons. And, you know, many Christians, when they are confronted by a Calvinist, will refer to 2 Peter 3.9, and they will say, well, doesn't the Bible say that God is not willing that any should perish? And immediately, The response from the Calvinist will be, well, God is not willing that any of the elect should not perish. And I would have to point out that the word elect is not in the verse. This is one of those examples where they are reading their Calvinism into the verse to make it fit with their theology. I would also point out that Peter is writing, quote, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. That's from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Peter is writing to believers, And God is not willing that believers should perish. It's also possible that Peter is speaking about the scoffers that Peter mentions in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. So I think usually when a non-Calvinist is approached, they get some of these verses thrown at them, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, 4. John 6.44, I have a big section on John 6.44 and that whole section from verse 40 on, and they really don't know what to say. So I'm hoping to give them some ammunition and the ability to intelligently discuss this whole system of theology. We're talking with Pastor Larry Spargimino about his book, Calvinism on Trial. And this book is available through the Watchman on the Wall broadcast, you can call us at 1-800-652-1144. That's 800-652-1144. Or you can go on our website at swrc.com and purchase the book, swrc.com. Let's think for just a minute, if we may, Larry, about the confused Christian. And this confused Christian might be old or young, but the confused Christian thinks of themselves as a biblicist, and occasionally they're confronted by Calvinism, and they cannot quite put it all together. How do we do that? How do we put it together? I think the first place to start is with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Calvinists believe that they're the only ones who honor the sovereignty of God. That, I think, is an erroneous notion because everybody says they agree that God is sovereign, not just the Calvinists. Now, the difference, however, is that the Calvinist has a particular slant on the sovereignty of God. Now, I think what the Bible teaches is that, indeed, God is sovereign, but God is free 
to set the rules. And in his setting of the rules, in his sovereignty, and I'm speaking about a sovereign God, he has determined that faith is extremely important. He has given to human beings the ability to make a decision without compromising his sovereignty, because this was God's idea in the first place. And Ken, I like to think of a prison warden who said, okay, whoever does a number of good works, good things, doesn't have any strikes against them, he can be released six months earlier than his full sentence. So somebody does what's required, and he gets released six months earlier than was initially determined. Now, does that mean that the prison warden did not establish the rule and that the prisoner changed the rule? No. The warden gave him that right, that freedom. And I think that's exactly what we see in the Bible. There is that sense where God said, okay, your destiny is in your hands, and that's the way I'm going to do it. And that's really, I think, a basic definition of divine sovereignty. God is the one who sets the rules. And when he sets the rules, our theology might not agree with the rules, but hey, let's face it, he's the one who set the rules. And if we really believe in the sovereignty of God, he's the one who sets the rules and calls the shots. And he says, you know, if you believe, you will be saved. If you reject the gospel, you will be damned. That's God's will. Do you have to understand Calvinism and Arminianism and biblical theology and all these other things to come to faith in Christ? Absolutely not. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's very basic. However, there are people who muddy the waters. That's the problem. We have to be ready to give an answer because these five pointers, they come into churches and they split churches, churches that had six or 700 people, pretty soon they're whittled down to about 30. And I think that's very sad. So to be saved, believe. But then as a saved Christian, as a disciple, you're going to be confronting a lot of issues. And I think one of the issues will be Calvinism. Dr. Spargimino has much more to share from his brand new book on our next Watchman on the Wall program. Friends, every day the return of the Lord draws closer. Evangelism, outreach, and fervent prayer need to become a lifestyle. Yet, the growing popularity of five-point Calvinism has had a chilling effect on many. Dr. Larry Spargimino's latest book, Calvinism on Trial, examines some of the sovereignty texts to which Calvinists often appeal. This book will help the reader develop a good defense against what Dr. Spargimino calls kamikaze Calvinists. Calvinism on Trial is available now. Call 1-800-652-1144. You can also order online, swrc.com. Dr. Larry Spargimino was a Reformed Presbyterian pastor and also a Reformed Baptist pastor for several years. His prayer is that Calvinism on Trial will prepare you to think biblically about some of the areas of critical concern facing the church. Calvinism on Trial. 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Death and Taxes. Marvin McIlvaney comes now to look at these two unavoidable things in today's Bible in the News report. 
Nothing is certain except death and taxes. This famous quote about taxes originated with Benjamin Franklin in 1789. Over 200 years later, it still rings true. Death is certain. That is, unless the Lord Jesus returns for us and we're all caught up in the air. For some of us, though, we see our exit coming up, so we get in the right lane and slow down. But then, after we exit, we still could be paying taxes. If a deceased person owes taxes, the estate can be pursued by the IRS until the outstanding amounts are paid. The collection statute expiration date for tax collection is roughly 10 years, meaning the IRS can continue to pursue the estate for that length of time. And in some cases, the IRS can even request to extend this deadline. About 5,000 years ago, we see the first record of taxation in ancient Egypt, where the pharaoh collected a tax equivalent to 20% of all grain harvest. At the time, Egypt was without coined money, so grain represented a tangible store of value that could easily be collected and traded and redistributed throughout society. As with many modern innovations, the Greeks were responsible for taking the idea of taxation and spreading it throughout the developed world. Here's a fun fact. The Rosetta Stone, our key to unlocking the meaning of hieroglyphics, was mostly a tax document that explained new tax laws decreed in 196 B.C. Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, was a king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, and a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek and Abraham first met after Abraham's defeat of the king of Elam and his three allies. Melchizedek presented bread and wine to Abraham and his men, just like the bread and wine at the Last Supper. Melchizedek is the king and priest of Salem and is a type for understanding how Jesus occupies the offices of king and priest. Melchizedek bestowed a blessing on Abraham in the name of God Most High and praised God for giving Abraham a victory in battle. Abraham then presented Melchizedek with a tithe, a tenth of all the items he had gathered. The tithe we trace back to Abraham is the tithe given to the Levites and priests for their service to the temple. Later on, Jacob, after having his dream of a ladder going up to heaven in Genesis 28, said, And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house, and all that thou shalt give me I will surely give the tenth unto thee. Once again, here is the giving of the tenth, or tithe. Of course, we all know the story about how the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus into saying something that would get him in trouble. And what do you know? It concerned paying taxes. But he had the perfect answer. Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Even back then, paying a tax was important. And don't forget the time he told Peter to go fish in Matthew 17. Least we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, and cast a hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take, and give unto them for me and thee. Again, an example of the Lord Jesus paying a tax. Much of the start of America's history centered around taxation. Originally, America was without its largest source of revenue, the income tax. American colonies levied property taxes, 
excise taxes, poll taxes, and some early forms of income tax. While American governments were doing well financially, the British government faced debt from many wars worldwide. This led to the British government turning to the American colonies for additional revenue and the beginning of the tax struggle that led to the American Revolution. These included the Sugar Act of 1764, which was tax on molasses, sugar, and wine. The Stamp Act of 1765 were taxes on important printed material like legal documents, newspapers, and pamphlets. The Townsend Act of 1767 were taxes on 72 different items, including the tax on tea that led to the Boston Tea Party. The issue of taxation without representation played a large role in the development of the American legislative system. Fast forward to 2022 in the midterm elections. Not quite the red wave that everybody was expecting, but still not a complete disaster. The Republicans took over Congress, and after a wild two weeks and 15 different votes trying to find a Speaker of the House, they settled on Republican Kevin McCarthy of California. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced during his very first address as Speaker that the funding for new IRS agents provided under the Inflation Reduction Act passed last year would be one of the first bills the new Congress takes up. Quote, This was our very first act of the new Congress, because government should work for you, not against you, McCarthy wrote. Promises made, promises kept. Sure enough, the new Republican House majority's first legislative move passed a bill rescinding $72 billion in spending on 87,000 new IRS agents. And as a side note, Syracuse University's Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse released data provided to them by the IRS on audits performed by the IRS in fiscal year 2022. Guess what the data showed? That the IRS hassled primarily low-income taxpayers with relatively few millionaires and billionaires getting audited. What a surprise. Here's a quote. The taxpayer class with unbelievably high audit rates, five and a half times more than everyone else, were low-income wage earners taking the earned income tax credit, noting that the poorest taxpayers are, quote, easy marks, close quote. The House will be voting on Georgia Republican Representative Buddy Carter's reintroduced Fair Tax Act. This bill would abolish the IRS, eliminate the national income tax, and replace it with a national consumption tax. President Joe Biden adamantly opposes that Republican bill. He warns that the bill would end up raising taxes on middle-class families. My question is, Mr. President, how could it raise taxes if the biggest tax is eliminated and the threat of incarceration is gone? Will we ever abolish the IRS and eliminate the national income tax? Probably not, but it sure is something to dream about. Dr. Larry Spargimino's brand new book, Calvinism on Trial, will help you develop a good defense against what Dr. Spargimino calls kamikaze Calvinists. Calvinism on Trial is available now. Call 1-800-652-1144 or you can order online swrc.com. 
Tomorrow, Dr. Larry Spargimino continues to lay out his case with part two of Calvinism on Trial. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.